I'm getting married. Like, in less than two weeks from the date this comes out, I'm going to put on a white dress and a veil and, like, glue fake eyelashes to my eyelids and walk down the aisle and recite vows I wrote myself and get a ring put on my finger. But, like, a second ring, which apparently you're supposed to wear doubled up with the first ring like you're a late 90s teen goth or something. And kiss a boy in front of my family and have them cheer for it instead of grounding me all weekend. And sign a contract I paid $60 for, plus credit card fees, after assuring a government worker that we weren't related. Just kidding. My fiancé paid for it. Such a gentleman. Why am I doing all this? Well, that's a big question. The obvious answer is that the person I've been dating for four years has proven to be someone I want to be attached to for a lot longer than that. But of course, we don't have to do a wedding. We could just go to the courthouse and make it legal. And to be fair, the wedding we're having is not strictly traditional. We're still in a pandemic and our loved ones are in all different locations at all different levels of risk. So we're streaming the ceremony over Zoom. But we're still following many wedding traditions. So I ask again, why? Why the white dress? Why the rings? Why take a relationship that was going fine already and make it legally binding? What made that first human spouse-to-be go, I know we're already together, but let's do some rituals that'll keep us together forever? Today, we're getting those answers. And the answers, as you might guess, aren't exactly dripping with romance. I'm Ashley Hamer, and this is Taboo Science, the podcast that answers the questions you're not allowed to ask. When I get married, I'm going to partake of a tradition that goes way back in human history. It's been around for a very long time. We're not sure exactly when it developed, but it was one of the first social institutions that human beings developed. My name is Stephanie Kuntz. I teach history and family studies at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, and I'm the director of research and public education at the Council on Contemporary Families. Too often, we look at marriage in terms of sexual selection, when in fact, I think the evidence suggests that marriage was uh, a way of socially selecting groups to survive, not just the kids who were born to a married couple. Marriage was a way of reaching out to 
enhance the collaboration of early groups. And for that reason, anthropologists are now saying that they think that arranged marriages in some form or another have been around for more than 50,000 years. 50,000 years! That's before anatomically modern humans even developed. Now, of course, we have no way of knowing what their marriages were actually like, and it's probably a safe bet that they were very different from how we think of marriage today. But there's genetic evidence that shows that early humans moved in close-knit social networks with very little inbreeding. That suggests that they weren't just mating willy-nilly. They specifically went outside of their group to find mates. And from trinkets found with ancient human remains, they may have even had ceremonies and rituals devoted to that. But there's a good chance that this wasn't just about inbreeding. Back in times when human beings lived in small mobile bands, foraging bands, and one of the things that marriage appears to have been done is kind of the opposite of what we do today. You know, people make these jokes about how in-laws interfere with marriage. Well, I'm convinced that marriage was invented to get in-laws. It was less about the relationship between the two individuals, though that, of course, uh, was important to, to make sure that that went well. But it was a way of reaching out beyond your individual family and even your individual band and to bring yourself into cooperation with others because it brought non-relatives, it made them part of your family, and it extended your list of obligations. And recently, when, when you, we look at uh, surviving band-level societies, we find that they have much more extensive definitions of in-laws than we do. Not just, you know, your wife's brother, but your wife's brother's uh, sister and her husband, and et cetera, et cetera. And so marriage seems to have been originally a really important institution for establishing cooperation, collaboration, and trust uh, among people who might not always meet each other and know each other without the, such things. But once you start talking about establishing connections with people outside your band, you get a lot more people involved in the decision. Like those in-laws want to have a say in things too. If marriages were arranged, you also have to talk about what the parents and the group as a whole were wanting. And what they were wanting was to establish cooperative, sociable relations between people. That was a very important part of the function of, of earliest marriage. Then what you get with the development of class societies or, or status and inequalities, I don't want to marry my son off to just anybody. I want to marry him to somebody equally or even more important. And that's when marriage becomes something that is about establishing resources, getting alliances among the upper classes. It's the way of establishing your claim to a throne. Uh, you're descended from royalty. It sets up peace treaties. Among the middle classes, it's a substitute for banking. That's the way you raise capital. And among the lower classes, it's the way you develop your working household, which has to be a partnership because there was no such thing as a male breadwinner in peasant households of the past. You had to work together. So all of these things meant that Love was a nice kind of thing if it could develop in marriage, but for thousands of years, people thought that love was a very, very foolish reason to actually get married. Yep, that's right. Love was a stupid reason to get hitched. Today, it's like the only reason. Marrying for money or power or social alliances is so frowned upon that the people who do it, 
you know, usually celebrities, have to make a big show out of how in love they really are. But back in the day, love wasn't an important ingredient in a good marriage. But that soon started to change. So the idea was that love was something that should ideally develop after marriage because it made the working partnership a lot more uh, secure and run more smoothly. But it was not a good reason to marry for love because love is something that is very emotional and can be quite irrational. Uh, so for men, of course, you very often have the right to, to seek love outside marriage or at least uh, sex outside marriage. Uh, women seem to have done that, too, when they could get away with it. But as this new idea develops, as young people, young people have always wanted to marry for love. And as that interacted with the development of wage labor that allowed them to, to thumb their noses at their parents if needed, the development of the new enlightenment ideas that the older generation shouldn't dictate to the young generation, people began to marry for love. And this horrified social conservatives of the day. They said, my gosh, if we let people marry for love, first of all, even scarier than the idea that people would then demand the right to divorce <laughs> if they didn't love each other, was the idea that men would start giving into their wives, you know, giving into these people that they loved and could wrap them around their little finger. So it was a real, it was a real crisis. It was just as shocking to many conservatives of the day as same-sex marriage uh, was to conservatives of the early 20th, first century. You might think that when we started marrying for love, things got a lot more equal between men and women. And yeah, they sort of did. But it also just led to a new reason for inequality. Because patriarchy is a hell of a drug. Many people believe that the ideal of marrying for love gave women a lot of power. I think that it did increase their power, especially during the courtship period. And in fact, in the early days of the love match in the 19th century, one of the things that historians comment on is that women were eager to get engaged, but would often try to postpone the wedding date for a while because they were in charge in a little bit in the courtship since they had the right to refuse now. Uh, once married, of course, there was still the old economic dependence of women and a lot of the old uh, rules of marriage that a husband was supposed to have the final word. So in a sense, love uh, created new opportunities for intimacy, but they also created new pressures on women it wasn't like the, the medieval world where you just had to obey your husband whether you liked it or not. Now you weren't supposed to obey him out of duty. You were supposed to obey him out of love because you admired him so much and respected him so much and were so in love with him. And you have these writings like Nathaniel Hawthorne, who was deeply, deeply in love with his wife, Sophia, would write to her about how much he loved her and yet my love gives me the sense that I can tell you what to do, he says at one point in his letters. Not because I am your boss, but because I love you so much that you must somehow obey me because I love you and you love me. And this, this became a real issue for women. But of course, as women experimented in their relationships and did have intimate relationships with men, but also, I think, and even more importantly, as they entered the paid workforce as there were feminist ideas beginning to develop and a movement, the women began to demand a redefinition of love, that it's not adoration, 
that it is real mutual equality. And it's really only in the last 40 years that we have, I think that the majority of Americans have re reworked their ideas of love to make it about equality rather than about difference. And then we lived happily ever after. <laughs> Not quite. Something kind of weird happened when marriages became more equal, and it took place in the bedroom. One of the big challenges for us is to find equality as erotic as we were told difference should be. You know, when we first started this idea of the different love match, uh, you find it in romance novels from Jane Eyre right up to Fifty Shades of Grey. The woman finds the man attractive because he is so much more powerful, strong, he is richer, he's wiser, he's stronger, he could hurt her, he's everything she's not, but if she's just woman enough, he will love her enough to refrain from hurting her. And of course, today, most of us Many of us still find those um, the confused anxiety with attraction, confuse a little bit of fear with, with love. But in fact, in the long run, that's not what we want from our relationships. And we're still just beginning to figure out how to get an erotic, sexually satisfying heterosexual relationship that is based on equality rather than on the anxieties and insecurities that are engendered by difference. But not all is lost. Equality throwing a wrench in the old lovemaking gears may have been a bigger result of growing pains than of equality itself being unsexy. A couple years ago, there was a headline in the New York Times magazine about the equal but sexless marriage. And they were reporting on a study that had been done, I think it was 2013, uh, that showed that couples who had the most egalitarian, the most unconventional divisions of labor and childcare and housework were less sexually attracted to each other, reported lower sexual satisfaction and marital satisfaction. But some of the researchers that I know around the Council on Contemporary Families said, you know, this was taken from a study published in 1992 of longitudinal study of marriages. That meant that it was marriages from the 70s and 80s when such unconventional divisions of labor were really very, very shocking to people. They said, what if we started to study more recent marriages? So they did a study of marriages that formed since the 1990s, and they found the opposite, that the marriages that came closest to an egalitarian division of housework and childcare had the least conflict, had the reported the highest marital satisfaction, reported the highest sexual satisfaction. It just goes to show how much the expectations of society weigh in on our most private interactions. If most people in a society believe that a normal marriage requires a powerful male breadwinner and a demure female homemaker, then any relationships outside of that norm, even if the participants fully believe in their relationship, are going to feel the strain of society. But that truth cuts both ways. If the society's expectations is, if the social idea is this is what's a good marriage and this is what feminists and their allies have had increasing success in convincing people that a good marriage is about equality, then violations of that will seem to be wrong and will be taken personally. Gosh, so so like we, you couldn't just put people 
in the Enlightenment, you couldn't just put them in a 2010 marriage and expect them to uh, have the same kind of well-being as someone in modern day, right? That's a very important insight, you know, that for people back in the 16th, 17th century, love and duty and obligation and order and hierarchy were pretty much interchangeable. And you can have women defying it, but they understood that they were defying it and got pleasure in some of the stories that you read about defying it, not out of being the egalitarian. And so just as we would not like to live in their marriages, I think they would have some trouble adjusting to our marriages, even though, let me say right away, it's very clear through the ages that women have not liked the inequality of marriage and have fought against it and have sometimes been able to establish more egalitarian and satisfying relationships. So it's not like they would be desperately unhappy. It's just that it would take some adjustment. What is this? Wow. (laughs) Do I like it? Um, Yeah, maybe I do. (laughs) So we've established why we get married. But why do we have weddings and all the traditions therein? Why, when I search for a wedding on Etsy, do I get a million identical script font cake toppers and bridesmaid proposal kits and novelty garters, as if each of our unique and idiosyncratic relationships must be standardized and normalized so we're all the same as everybody else? I've spent an uncomfortable amount of time on wedding forums recently, and it's amazing how most of the questions aren't for advice on how to navigate a tricky family situation or what color would look best with their wedding venue, but about what the rules are. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to look? Who am I supposed to invite? If we don't follow the rules, we'll offend and upset and embarrass people. As annoying as it can feel when you're in the middle of wedding planning, this is not unique to weddings. Rituals like these are an essential part of human culture. Rituals contain moral messages and ideals of behavior for a society. And participating in that ritual is a demonstration that you accept those morals and ideals. So if you don't participate, you're rejecting what society says is the right way to be. And that can come with some steep costs. No wonder brides-to-be spend so much time figuring out the rules. But the traditions we follow haven't been around forever. A lot of them came from good old-fashioned class aspirations. Well, a lot of the wedding ceremonies that we have now are ones that developed during the apex of class society and arranged marriages. And so you look at what the upper class does, and those are that's the things that get reported. Those are the things that you have some aspirations to live like them. So a lot of the marriages, customs that we think of, you know, the big pageantry that we see in weddings came from royal weddings of the past, because those are the ones that were reported on. Those are the ones where people would, they would be very public because this was part of the social status of showing off how wealthy you were and how big your alliances were. And then the people who watched them who had aspirations might want to join that. For example, let's take a look at the, the white wedding dress that's so popular. People sometimes think, oh, well, the white wedding dress, it's really hypocritical because, you know, white was for virginity. Well, that's not what the white wedding dress was about at all. The traditional color for virginity and purity was blue. 
and um, many women wore that to their weddings. Thus, the old Victorian-era rhyme, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Blue was once a symbol of purity. The something old was meant to ward off evil, especially for the couple's future children. The something new was about optimism for the future. The something borrowed was supposed to come from another happily married couple, preferably that bride's undergarments, you know, to give yourself some of their good luck. And the part that everyone forgets, and a sixpence in her shoe, which was for prosperity. Sixpences aren't made anymore, and open-toed shoes aren't good hiding places for coins, so I can see why that one fell out of favor. Anyway, back to the wedding dress. Back in the day, most of them weren't white. A lot of them wore brown or black because those were very practical. Black was particularly uh, appropriate because you could repurpose it for a funeral as well. But the white wedding became very, very popular after Queen Victoria walked down the aisle in a white brocaded dress. And one of the things that when we look at the big trains of the wedding dresses, this was not something that had to do with showing the modesty or the virginity of the woman. White was the color that debutantes wore when they were presented at court. And any woman who was at court had to wear a dress with a train at least three foot long. So in a very real sense, these white wedding dresses that we now think of as, as so traditional were class aspirational. Uh, they were a way that a woman or her family could say, oh, look, look at what we can do. It's sort of like you could have your little prince's wedding. <laughs> okay, so what about the other traditions? Let's go through them rapid fire style. First, rings. Ancient Roman men gave women rings as a symbol not of love or devotion, but as ownership. They were also the first to wear wedding rings on the fourth finger, which they believed contained a vein that went directly to the heart. It doesn't. Next, bridesmaids and groomsmen. They were originally there to literally protect the bride from spurned, angry suitors. Or in the case of groomsmen, they were there to actually kidnap her from her family. The bouquet toss used to be a shoe toss. The concept of not seeing the bride before the ceremony goes back to the age of arranged marriages, where you weren't supposed to see the merchandise before the deal was made. Otherwise, you'd have time to call off the ceremony. This is actually the same reason for the veil, although veils also did double duty of warding off evil, as you do. And bridal showers, to my delight, actually have surprisingly feminist roots. They started as a way for a bride's friends to raise a dowry for the bride to marry the man of her choice, you know, in case her father didn't approve and wouldn't give a dowry. The original GoFundMe, huh. And then there's the whole concept of virginity. I think I have the idea that up until a certain point, every bride was a virgin on her wedding day. Is that true? And when did virginity become important for this? Well, that's that rises and falls in different periods of history. In some societies where private property was very important, the Greeks used to put it that you didn't want somebody else to sow their seed in the field that you're going to plow. So there was a sense that you've got to have your uh, women be pure and virtuous. And also, of course, there was a lot of concern that you don't want another blood type 
introduced into your family line. What if I get married and I'm already pregnant with somebody else's child? And at some point I admit that it's somebody else's child, then that family is going to claim some relationship with my husband's family. And that would be very distressing for a property family. (laughs) So there's been more concern about virginity in the upper classes with a few exceptions, um, such as uh, Southern France, where it, it seems to have been quite acceptable to have dalliances, even if you were a female of the upper class. But for most of history, I think the common idea was not that you had to be a virgin in in marriage. This became particularly urgent, uh, considered urgent in the 18th and 19th century. And it reached the point where, in fact, in Germany, it was considered okay for a man to actually withdraw a marriage proposal if he found that his wife was not a virgin. And this was something that would not have passed muster at all during the Middle Ages. With all that, it's pretty safe to say that for most of us, marriage as an institution is better than it's ever been. And yet, our expectations for what a marriage should be are also higher than ever. And those expectations can be hard to meet. Well, I think we do have very high expectations, and having studied the low expectation marriages of the past, I'd be very hesitant to tell people to tamp down their expectations. What I tend to think is that it's not that our expectations of marriage are too high, but that they're too concentrated in our partner. We have too low expectations of other parts of society and of other people in our lives. We tend to expect to get everything from the partner, to be our best friend, our lover, our confidant, uh, our person who teaches us things, the person that, that we teach things to. And, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that people do better when they don't over-specialize, that when we have some friends who, who are good for this parts of us and another friend who might be answers this need, not necessarily sexual, but that, that you have other kinds of needs that you can go to so you're not relying on one person for everything. And that includes, it includes having other friends and friendship networks. That's very important to people's morale, especially as they age. But also, and this I've been very struck by during the pandemic, the extent to which it's also very important to our well-being. There's a lot of research that shows our ties with people who are not friends, but that we just interact with in a friendly way every once in a while, you know, and to the extent that we lose those and have to rely on one person, that's a tremendous stressor. And everybody's going to flunk that test. You know, nobody can be everything to one person. But that comes down to those societal expectations again. Like, don't you think that there is an expectation out there that your husband or wife needs to be all of those things? Well, I think it's mixed. I think there is that from the romance novels, you know, the you complete me cliche, but that as women have entered the workforce, they've begun to develop the idea that, oh, work has tremendous meaning to me. I get something out of that that I don't get at home. Uh, We've seen that very clearly. Uh, When you take women's stress levels, they're lower at work than they are at home (laughs) because they're getting some kind of meaning from that and some kinds of other social interactions. We're also finding changes in men. 
back in the 50s when people married young, men basically went from their family of origin to be taken care of by their wife. And they tended to drop their other friends. There was a lot of pressure on them to just concentrate on their on their on their own family, on their breadwinning, and then on coming home to their own family. Well, now with the age of marriage rising, I think young men as well as young women are realizing the importance of developing your own independent friendship network. And it's quite a change. You know, at, at, at my age, what, sometimes when I will call a friend's house and the man answers and I'll say, do you want to come to dinner? He'll say, let me turn you over to my social secretary. You know, it's kind of a joke, <laughs> joke. But he means it, that the woman is in charge of the social life. I don't see that with my son and his friends. They are in charge of their social lives. And it's a real even thing. So I, I think that there's two conflicting kind of messages in our society. One, he should, you know, the other person should be your best friend, your everything. But the other other side and healthier side is, well, yes, that's a very special person in your life, but you also need other sources of comfort, of stimulation, of interactions that you can bring home and enrich your interactions with the other person. There are studies that show that when you, when you ask people what makes them happiest in terms of the couple, it's either having sex, and, you know, or it's being socializing with other people outside the home. And I've always thought that that's, that just makes such perfect sense to me. And the example that I use when I explain to people is, my husband is very funny, but I have heard all of his jokes. When we go out with other people though, I can show off how funny he is. And I don't mind hearing a joke the second time when all these people laugh and they, you know, they laugh at him, which boosts his ego, but they admire uh, me for having such a funny husband, which boosts my ego. And according to research, it's those little things that really make the difference. Grand gestures and honeymoon vacations and handwritten poems just don't measure up to the validation you get from your partner just being interested in what you have to say. I was talking about some studies that John Gottman has done. He has spent a lot of his research time looking at the interactions between newlyweds and trying to figure out if he can go back after time and figure out which of these interactions have the best predictive power as to whether these marriages lasted or not. And he found, to his surprise, he says to me, that it wasn't how they fought or how intimate they were. It was little tiny interactions which he calls bids for connection and I sometimes think of as bids for attention, you know. Uh, I'll give you an example. You're, you're sitting at the table and you say, oh, look at that sunset out there. And he coded his graduate students to do a negative, a neutral, or a positive reaction. You know, uh, oh, look at that boat out there. I'm trying to work. That would be a, new, a negative reaction. Uh-huh, that's neutral. But leaning into it, saying, oh, yeah, look at, do you remember the, when we took a boat trip? You know, we ought to do that more often. That's a leaning in. That's a really positive. And he found that when people had that kind of responsive leaning in to their partner's bids for connection or attention, as I call my own husband's bids, uh, they do that 80, 85% of the time, they're going to do fine in their marriage. When I read that, I thought, oh gosh, do I respond often enough to my husband? Uh, maybe I should respond a little more. But when I really thought about it, I realized 
The reason that I respond positively to my husband is that he doesn't interrupt me very often. He respects the work I do. When he does, it's to tell me something he thinks I would need to know or that I would find really funny and worth my distracting myself from the work I'm doing at the kitchen table or wherever I've laid out my books for the day. So I respond positively. But if I didn't have that, how would I respond 85% of the time? If I was thinking, you know, here I'm working away and he says, Stephanie, do this or hey, oh, look at this. I would be going, trying really hard to, to be nice. And he would know. I mean, you know. So what I take from Gottman's studies is that, well, maybe you should try to be a little more responsive when you can, but there is no way to raise yourself from a 40% response rate to an 85% response rate unless you have a different partner. You've got to pick a partner who you know will connect with you in ways that you are open to being connected with. And once you've got that, yes, then you can fine tune it a little bit by being more responsive. But my point is that simply you've got to pick the right partner, a partner who respects you, a partner whose bids for connection and attention are welcome and not intrusive and not overbearing. It sounds like it. the response might be more of a sign of how the relationship is doing rather than something that will make the relationship better. Exactly. And I think that's true. I mean, I really respect the work of psychologists like that, Tom Bradbury, Andrew Christensen, you know, their work, as well as John Gottman's, is always worth reading. But I do think there's a certain point at which you have to recognize that you can't suck this sort of thing out of your thumb. If you don't have a respectful relationship, if you don't respect yourself and are self-confident in you, and if you don't understand that your partner respects you and that you respect your partner, you can't just do this sort of thing by rote. (laughs) But even if you've got all your ducks in a row, you're in love, you've got an equal partnership, you respond positively every time your partner, say, shows you a funny tweet or wants to practice a magic trick on you. Even then, many marriages are still under incredible stress, thanks to our old friend, systemic inequality. I think that what we're seeing in marriage today is a real good news, bad news story. The good news is how much individuals are making progress toward developing relationships that are respectful and egalitarian and concerned with, you know, their children, but also with developing a mutual network of of friends. I think that's a very positive sign. There are a couple of negatives. One is on the part of government, which has just not at all so far been responsive. And this, the pandemic has illustrated this, you know, just to devastate devastating effect with the needs of the typical family, which is now a two-earner family. But there's another sense, too, in which uh, you have a real problem with marriage, and that is that it's increasingly becoming something that is hard to maintain if you don't have economic stability and predictability in your lives. And the reason, I think, is because Back in the 1950s and 60s, for example, a man could always get a job. <laughs> and even if he wasn't a really didn't have a high school degree, he would be earning more 
within a few years, three or four times as much typically as his father had earned at the same age. So he was moving up in the world. Meanwhile, women were not making any gains in real wages at all if they went to work. Uh, in fact, their real wages were falling. And the only way that they could participate in this expanding consumer economy was to get married. The result was that you didn't have the same need for negotiation because there was just this unevenness. The man needed the woman to take care of things at home. The woman needed the man to bring home things that she couldn't purchase on her own. Well, today, men and women have so many options outside marriage, and we have much higher expectations, good high expectations of, of egalitarianism and sharing in marriage. And so it's a more fraught choice. It's like, well, certainly we love each other. We'd be better off if we joined forces and both contributed to the to the family coffers. But what if the woman says to herself, what if the man expects me still to do all the housework and child rearing and I don't want to? I have other interests now and other possibilities. What if he abuses or misuses the resources? And the man thinks, you know, yes, I would like this love and affection, but I also would like a woman who can pull her own weight because it's an insecure world. And the result is that economic security is much more important to people and economic insecurity is much more destabilizing because it undermines the kind of constant negotiation and uh, reinforcement that people need in egalitarian relationships. And so we've seen this class divide in access to marriage and access to stable marriages that people with higher educations and more stable economics are getting married and their divorce rates have been falling. But at the lower end of the economic and educational spectrum, you're seeing a real decline in marriage and the people who do marriage have a much, much higher chance of getting divorced. You know, this is a period when people feel like they're falling behind and they are falling behind in a very real sense. Most middle-class families may have a lot bigger homes than their grandparents had, but they've got much much less security about the housing expenses, about the educational expenses, the college, which is really necessary for their kids. They're working more hours. Uh, so these are all areas of tension. And those kinds of tensions come out more when people are under chronic economic stress. There's research that shows that that kind of chronic insecurity and stress undermine couples' negotiation skills and communication patterns much more than even bad experiences in childhood, like coming from a broken family or whatever. So yes, I think that this is a, this is a real new problem and makes it even more important for us to take on the question of the rising inequality that we saw. That was the pre-existing condition that COVID took advantage of and is worsening as we speak. In the end, I can pick the right partner, the right dress, the right wedding stationery and flower arrangements and registry. But every marriage is still going to face hardship. Some of that hardship we can fight against by voting. But the rest? I've just got to trust that I have the right tools at my disposal and the right partner by my side and get ready to deal with whatever comes our way. Thanks for listening. Taboo Science is written and produced by me, Ashley Hamer. The theme was by Danny Lapotka of DLC Music. Thank you so much to Stephanie Kuntz. 
You can find links to her wonderful books, including Marriage, A History, How Love Conquered Marriage, in the show notes and on stephaniekuntz.com. Because I've got this whole, you know, wedding thing to attend to, I'm going to take a very short break from new episodes. You can expect the next episode, all about why we eat some animals, but not others, with THE Dr. Melanie Joy on April 22nd. If you're just like so excited for me and want to give me a wedding gift, then leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. I mean, come on, it's way better than a blender, right? Welp, here goes nothing. See you when I'm married. <laughs>